Hi everyone and welcome to not just another Isolation Insight event but the first of a week of events we're hosting at this time at the UK in a changing Europe. This is our alternative to online conferences if you like. We decided that basically most people wouldn't want to sit through a day of Zoom so what we do is put up an event on every day at lunchtime at the same time dealing with different aspects of economics. So today we're, we're revisiting uh the economics of brexit and covid with our what i'm going to call them our economics panel because that's what they've de facto become uh tomorrow we're talking about uh impacts on business on wednesday we're talking about economics and populism on thursday we've got an event on inequality and on friday we've got a panel who are just going to be there to answer your questions so if you leave today frustrated by the fact that your question hasn't been posed if you come back on friday your odds will be far far better so without further ado we're going to kick off uh, oh no actually let me quickly introduce the panel Gemma Tetlow from the Institute for Government Ben Chu from the Independent Meredith Crowley University of Cambridge and Jonathan Portes from King's College London uh, as I say we reunite this group periodically to talk through the economy so my first question I suppose is since we last met in October to discuss these things what are the big things that have happened or changed and I'm, I see I, you're in a certain order, but I'm reluctant to pick on anyone. Who'd like to kick off first? I'm happy to give it a go first. Thanks, Gemma. Um, I mean, I'd probably highlight two major things that have changed since we last talked in October. I guess the first thing is that we've seen the reality of what has happened to the economy and trade in the early months since the end of the transition period. So we've seen some of the impacts of the new uh, barriers to trade with the EU and some of the impacts of what's going on on the border with Northern Ireland and GB. Uh, the second thing I think has changed is that we've had much better news on the vaccine effectiveness and the vaccine rollout programme. So that's put us in a position where we're now expecting a faster bounce back of economic activity this year, getting back to normal more quickly. Um, but certainly, according to the OBR's forecast, that hasn't really changed the long term picture that we'll be still getting back to a, a depressed economic state after COVID dust has settled, but getting them back there more quickly. Thank you. Ben. Yeah, I mean, Gemma's absolutely right. We've had, well, the two things I would say is the Brexit deal, obviously, this time uh, in October, we didn't know we were going to have a deal. Now we know we've got a deal, uh, albeit a thin one, as expected. Uh, we've also got the vaccines, as Gemma said, that changes the uh, uh, the economic outlook profoundly, although we're also in lockdown, <laughs> which we weren't expecting in October. We were hoping uh, things would be clearer by now. But I would just I mean, I would stress that, you know, when we were talking in October, they were, we knew that the budget was going to be postponed because of the uncertainty, because it, was, it wasn't clear what the point was having a budget when we were still so radically uh, uh, unclear about what the outlook would be. I would say that really still exists to a considerable degree. There's a huge number of really important questions which we just don't know the answer to about the amount of slack in the economy about human about how consumers are going to respond uh when uh the lockdown eventually eases you know jonathan's work on the population we're not really clear about what's happened to migration uh during the lockdown and what will happen when it uh, when it when reopens will those workers come back these are huge profound questions so although we have some more clarity since October in some ways. In other ways, we're just as much in the dark as we were, I would argue. Meredith? 
Um, so I'll just add um, to what uh, Ben was talking about with respect to the agreement. So we now have the TCA agreement in front of us. And one of the important things we understand now is how complex the agreement is and also how the EU and the UK are proposing to deal with the level playing field. So before the agreement came through, one of the big questions was, is the UK going to be forced to, in some ways, you know, through back doorway, adopt British uh, EU standards? And is there really going to be a, a high degree of autonomy allowed? And so now we have a clearly defined dispute resolution system, which allows for rebalancing. And I think one of the interesting things to me is, you know, the chancellor has proposed really aggressive tax breaks for investment, which I think everyone can see at some level tax breaks for investment are a good fiscal stimulus to come out of a recession. But the sort of big looming kind of question is how will this be regarded in Europe? And one of the, the issues with rebalancing is if there's uh, substantial material impacts on trade and investment associated with future UK policy, Theoretically, the EU can say this is undermining our own um, sort of market integrity, and they could go into a process that could allow them to impose tariffs on goods coming in from the UK. So if the EU says your tax breaks are attracting investment that otherwise wouldn't be there, and that's leading to increased imports into the EU, so a new firm establishes because of generous tax breaks, that new firm that's established might be doing it thinking, oh, we can export to the EU. But actually the EU under the TCA can theoretically impose tariffs to rebalance the fact that the investment went to the UK because of the sort of post-Brexit, you know, separation of, of policy and the fact that we the UK is no longer in the, the EU state aid formula. So there's a little bit more uncertainty. On the one hand, this there's an incentive for investment coming from the chancellor's you know, new budget rules. But on the other hand, there's a disincentive associated with if you take the big tax cut and you get the investment benefit, you might not be able to export to the EU anymore. So um, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. When it comes to what the chancellor said about free pause, do you think that might trigger uh, those clauses in the TCA? Do you think the EU might be looking at those and thinking, hang on a sec? They could theoretically, I think it's a little bit more complicated. I think, you know, generally, if um, you could go either way, so both whether you get a big investment, you put it into a free port, and then you try to start exporting to the EU after taking a big um, kind of expense on your investment in a free port geography, and then you're exporting something onto the EU, the EU could say, well, that investment was um, disproportionate. It doesn't matter to them whether it's coming under free ports or under the general tax policy. That disproportionate investment associated with like new tax policy in the UK could be problematic and could spark retaliatory tariffs. I think there's maybe with free ports, um, the UK could try to persuade the U EU not to um, retaliate against free, you know, against a, a special investment provision in an economically deprived area. But there's nothing about that in the treaty. 
So they could try to say this is a depressed area and, you know, that's a very minor part of the economy and it's geographically, you know, dealing with poverty and try to persuade them that it's not something they should retaliate against. But um, there's nothing clearly laid out for, say, specific economic development in the TCA. Excellent. And Jonathan, last but not least. Um, so I think two points, partly following on from what Mary this said. Um, the first is, is the sort of short term, you know, what, what we've learned about uh, the economic impacts of Brexit since January the 1st. Um, and I think um, my um, summary would be so far so good um, if you're a trade expert or an economist. That is to say, um, the predictions of the, what the trade expert said, which is what really matters is non-tariff barriers, um, and that will lead to a, you know, that those will, despite um, some bizarre assertions, both by fringe economists and fringe people talking about trade without knowing anything about it, that, that somehow these barriers would be of negligible cost or even not legal somehow under WTA rules with the new trade agreement. Um, you know, the mainstream view is portrayal. Um, these um, new the, the impact of non-tariff barriers is, is significant. And then, you know, it is very early and we really have no reliable data at all. And I think the ONS published something today explaining why it would be very difficult to interpret the data for some time. But, um, you know, the modeling work of people like Tom Sampson and others suggests really quite large falls in, in trade between the UK and the EU of 25 to 30%. Um, and I'd say that what we've seen so far does not immediately seem inconsistent with that. Um, and the sort of general view of economists that the likely impacts of Brexit are going to be significant, not disastrous, um, uh, not catastrophic, but not negligible either. Significant negative impacts on the trade-oriented bit of the UK economy. I'd say so far that those predictions are looking reasonably plausible still. The idea that this would make no difference at all doesn't seem to be validated equally. The idea that some sort of terrible catastrophe and the, the roof was going to fall in and we wouldn't be able to get fresh tomatoes in our stores, that's not true either. Um, so, so far so good from, from the, for the experts. Um, the second point I get, which is sort of following on from Meredith's point, and Meredith knows far more about the detail than I did, but making a sort of political economy point, which is that I think what we are seeing is that it's really, really quite difficult to have a in-between trade relationship between a large country and a very, very large country, um, like uh, uh, or very, very large trading bloc. Um, that, uh, that there is a significant risk, that, and, and I think some of us identified this a, a couple of months ago when the agreement came out, this looks like an unstable equilibrium, um, that either you're going to get, um, uh, you either at some point you're going to get a much, much more, uh, um, uh, much closer relationship over time that we will, you know, we will reconverge or that we will diverge. And it seems equally clear to me that for this government at least, um, the, the clear direction is divergence. And that's been very obvious in some of the things we've been hearing, both from the bank and from politicians about financial services. Um, you know, there is not going to be any substantive equivalence between the UK and the EU. We are going to diverge. We are going to, both sides are going to take 
effectively a mercantilist approach to financial services. And I think that may well end up being true across the board, that at least for the foreseeable future, um, the sort of equilibrium that was envisioned that you could, that, that, that if you were just reading the TCA without knowing any of the background or the politics, you'd think this is an attempt to construct a sort of halfway house, something in between clear convergence and, and um, strong divergence. And, and I think, you know, what the politic has shown is that's really going to be very hard. Um, at least in the short term, the pressures are going to be towards divergence and, and Meredith has outlined some of the ways in which that might occur. Thank you. And let me just say one thing to the audience, first and foremost, which is you'll be helping me tremendously if you voted for the questions you wanted me to ask the panel, just so I get a sense of uh, what, what questions you find most interesting. But just following on from your answer, Jonathan, on, on the impact of the pandemic, and this is for any or all of you, uh, how has your thinking moved on uh, since we, we last spoke? I mean, obviously, the vaccine is a massive uh, development. But in terms of how the economics played on, I mean, at various times, people have talked of V-shape, K-shape, any other letter you choose to pick shape. Uh, but where are you now and what has changed in your thinking, Meredith? So I'll say, I think Jonathan, and I apologies, this is wrong. I think early on he was saying, you know, this is a, a, a quick demand shock and it's, we're most likely to see a V-shape. And I think in the summer, I thought that the recession could be more L-shaped meaning that we could go down and stay low because until there was a vaccine that was really working, I saw us potentially having multiple rounds of this lockdown that could lead to uncertainty and, and kind of keep us sluggish for a long time. And so I think I'm now thinking we're, we're going back toward, you know, a V shape, or at least if we were in a, a big L, the L should start to, you know, shoot up and we should, we should start to improve um, as more and more vaccine comes online, as the lockdown eases this time, I think because such a big fraction of the population will have been vaccinated, we're much less likely to go through more rounds of this prolonging and staying low. So I think that, you know, with the stimulus, we should, and the vaccine together, we should be able to come out of this in the summer. And there should be a strong bounce back and that we should stay with a high level of activity because we won't have this repeated bouts of um of shutting down the economy yep Gemma. Um, i would agree with meredith there i think we do since we last spoke have a lot more certainty about the fact that we are on a path towards something more like normality and that we have a vaccine that will be effective enough to be able to do that provided government policy Sort of looks at the evidence and doesn't move too quickly and risk a, the need for a further lockdown before enough people are vaccinated and that sort of thing but um personally and a bit interested in what others think I, I think we still have perhaps the same degree of uncertainty about what the longer term impacts might be um so i think it remains to be seen exactly how quickly people do return to their previous behaviors um, when the restrictions get lifted and what the longer term impacts might be on certain parts of the economy, that still seems to be pretty uncertain and something we'll learn as the months go on. Yeah, Ben. Yeah, I think um, we clearly have the potential for a very strong recovery. But as Gemma said, the key question is how much scarring is there going to be in the medium to long term? 
And I slight, and I don't know the answer to that, but I do slightly worry that people are looking at the uh, forecast for the OBR for three percent of GDP long-term scarring. Bank of England, uh, Andrew Bailey today was saying banks estimate about one point seven five percent, and are, and are taking these as a bit almost like set in stone. And I worry that we those risks becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. That if people think, well, there's inevitably going to be scarring from this, therefore we don't want to have uh, monetary and fiscal policy set too uh, supportive because then we'll just get inflation. I think we should be aiming for the best possible recovery and we shouldn't take these scarring estimates as anything but very, very general and very, very rough uh, judgments and not too much place too much store on them. I think at the moment, the bigger danger is doing too little on the support and stimulus side, uh, fiscal and monetary, um, and baking in that long-term damage. That's the concern for me at the moment. And is there a sense at all of how unevenly distributed the damage might be? I mean, both sectorally and regionally and between different sort of sections of the population? Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the, the debate is a bit too simplistic when it comes to people are going to go out and spend because those, uh, those accumulated savings, as all those surveys have shown, have been very much accumulated amongst wealthier households whose marginal propensity to spend, as they say, in the jargon, might be a lot lower than people lower down. That's why I think it is very key macro policy, uh, well, it potentially has very big macro policy implications. The, uh, uh, the idea that they will let the universal credit uh, uh, £20 a week uplift uh, expire in the autumn, that could be just the wrong stimulus medicine that the country needs but also as you say regionally uh, between different types of businesses there's a lot that policy should be doing to make sure that we get the best possible uh, and the strongest possible recovery and it's not a case of well there's a lot of spending power uh, pent up in the economy let's just let it rip. Sorry Jonathan I butted in before you. Um, I mean I, 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 I partly agree with that I mean I'm not sure that you know it doesn't you don't need to have that much of the uh, um, of the, the the excess savings being spent to get quite a strong recovery in consumer demand. Um, you know, I would I, I think my what what I worry a bit when I hear Ben say that is not that I disagree with him fundamentally, but that that um, it turns out that actually the macro balances are actually do turn out to be okay but the micro imbalances and distributional consequences turn out to be far worse. And then people just focus on the first and not the second. I would be far, at this point at least, I'd be far, far more worried about the distributional consequences of a very uneven shock and a very uneven recovery than I would be about the sort of overall level of aggregate demand. I'm less worried that there's not going to be enough spending power in the economy. But, you know, do I worry about the six billion pounds a year being taken out of the economy by the end of the universal credit uplift, not that much. Do I worry about the consequences for living standards and poverty of £20 a week being taken out of the poorest 6 million households? Absolutely. And in some sense, it seems to me we probably should try and focus more on the second, on the distributional issues, which are really potentially absolutely horrendous. If you look at the disparate impact of the pandemic on um, the lower paid, on ethnic minorities, on people living in big cities. Um, they, they, it's, they, they really are genuinely horrific. Um, and of course, um, we have not completely, but in part that has been cushioned 
in the income sense a bit by, or at least in the spending sense, by uh, by extraordinary support measures. But those are going to be withdrawn, and, and they should be withdrawn in the sense that extraordinary measures should be replaced by ordinary measures. But if they, they're replaced by nothing, the consequences seem to me to be quite horrendous distributionally. And when you talk about addressing the distributional implications, what did you have in mind, if anything? Oh, I mean, uh, um, you know, I would bump back all of the uh, 20, you know, whether 20 pounds a week uplift for everyone is the right, precisely the right structure of an uplift to universal credit, I'm not sure. But at least, at least that amount should go back into the permanent structure of universal credit um, on the benefit side. Um, and then on the spending side, uh, I think the priority would be um, putting more, um, uh, more money into um, local authorities, because of course, the impact of uh, the cuts to, uh, um, to local authorities is, has precisely fallen on the burden of, uh, um, of those, that, uh, um, the, those local authorities where, where the needs are greatest. And those cuts have been very, very large over the last decade and are, are, are continuing, um, at least in the steady state, um, post-COVID. Um, there was an interesting graph uh, um, which um, uh, uh, somebody posted yesterday showing what you know, what factor best predicts the number of people who've died from COVID. Um, and uh, uh, it turns out that being in a Labour constituency is a very, very good predictor indeed. Um, and that obviously is not because, uh, as, as the poster said, it's not because being voting Labour makes you more likely to get COVID, nor is it because the Conservatives have chosen to target COVID on, on places that vote Labour. Um, it's because voting Labour is associated with, with being in a, uh, uh, um, in a big, being in relatively deprived areas, in particular in, in larger cities, and having high ethnic minority populations. To what extent do you think the government, in a sense, need, for, for some measures at least, needs to wait and see? I mean, Gemma was talking about the uncertainty about whether we go back to how we used to live or not, whether we start commuting again, whether we go back to city centres again. Should government try and preempt that by... I don't know, putting in measures to keep city centres alive, or should government to an extent wait and see how we behave and sort of go with the flow? I think to an extent, it makes sense to wait and see what happens. I think the advantage that Rishi Sunak has in the UK that, for example, Joe Biden doesn't have in the US, is that he can actually quite readily get new fiscal measures and new policies through Parliament. Mm. Um, and although this was his second budget, he'd actually had 13 other quite major fiscal statements over the course of the last year. So he doesn't have to do it all in one go. So I think that does mean that he can afford to wait and see in some dimensions. Uh, on the other hand, if we're sort of if we're more talking about supporting business growth or development or restructuring, there's an extent to which the private sector needs to understand what government's role is going to be in that to understand whether they have a future and how that will work so um, they can't just sort of completely make it up on the hoof I think. Yep Meredith? Well I'll just say two I take Gemma's point I think I agree with it you know it's it's good for policy to respond to the data but two things that the government does know a lot about are the deprivations and educational opportunities Right. And so there's a huge amount of information on precisely how disadvantaged young people in some regions, cities, schools have been hit. And there's a real negative potential of the long term impact of productivity if we don't help those children 
right? So that's one thing where I think many experts in education have commented that the summer programs to try to, you know, close this gap are, are totally going to be insufficient. I think another thing, you know, on the Brexit side that we understood was going to be a problem was small and medium-sized firms that are engaged in exporting. And I think, you know, the journalistic stories coming out of how easy has it been for firms to export their goods when they realize, oh my gosh, now I have to pay that and I have to file that in the EU as well as in the UK. This was sort of, um, the government was handling this for small and medium-sized firms for, you know, the last 40 years. So now these firms are having to figure out how to do this paperwork. There's been reports that HMRC support for this haven't really been there. And so there's sort of an infrastructure investment. Like if you really want to make it easy for these firms to be able to export to the EU and be able to have a positive response with recovery, you need to make sure that there's an, an infrastructure for filing you know, that abroad and some support to help firms. And that type of export assistance seems like it's been surprisingly lagging, right? So we've known for five years that we needed this um, and they still haven't really developed a good structure. And so this is, this is gonna hit the small firms. I like you a lot, you're all fantastically polite and you put your hands up, Ben. Yeah, um, I would agree with all that. I'd, I'd also add that obviously there's a lot of uncertainty at the moment and Gemma's right, there are other future opportunities uh, for the Chancellor to come back and do more. Uh, but there are certain things that we know are going to happen, despite the uncertainty about what will happen to the high street, etc. Um, just to pick out uh, three, social care, we know we need to get that sorted. Nothing on that in the budget at all. Uh, net zero policy, they're committed in law to that. We know there's a huge amount they need to be doing to get the infrastructure to decarbonise homes. There's nothing really on that uh, from the Chancellor at all that was substantive. These are things that they could definitely be getting on with now. Uh, local government, as Jonathan mentioned, massively starved of cash. There's no future scenario that you can really see that involves local governments needing less money. They're gonna need a lot more. Uh, and yet the chancellor has penciled in um, further cuts uh, to the uh, non-protected departments, which includes local government. So um, yes, there's uncertainty. Yes, he needs to be nimble, but there are certain things which we do know are coming down the tracks, which do know to be sorted. And a lot of them just, so, just weren't addressed uh, in the budget at all, which is very regrettable. I mean, is there, I mean to sort of be, try and defend the Chancellor a bit, there's an awful lot going on, isn't there? I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's immediate sort of crisis management, which must dominate his day-to-day -day thinking. I mean, could we really expect him to think about some of these more long-term things at the same time? I mean, is that fair? Yes. I think that's true. And in, in advance of the budget, I was really not expecting us to see the Chancellor laying out a full longer term plan for his fiscal objectives. Um, but actually, in a sense, he he tried to present it as we've got the short term yeah. release, which we carry on. And then I've got this long term plan. This is how I'm going to balance the public finances. And this is our plan for growth. So I think he tried to present it as his long term vision. But actually, the reality was that the tax rises, which were big in total, were also things that were somewhat lowest common denominator, the kind of tax rises that they thought they could do most easily without people screeching. And in terms of the plan for growth, it was a bit of a mishmash of new funds for this, that and the other without, as Ben said, hmm. a clear sense of how does this up to achieving the long-term objectives the government has set itself, whether that's levelling up net zero, um, 
and I, I think Ben and Meredith are both right about the the gap around really spending on public services that will have to be addressed in the autumn spending review. But the the money that's there at the moment doesn't really include any ongoing funding for ongoing costs of COVID, whether that's an annual immunisation programme or continuing to deal with the legacy of lost education this year um, or any of those things. I think there were some definite gaps in the budget. Okay, right. We're going to turn to your questions now. I assume that the various people writing comments to me about how ridiculous my hair looks, they're not questions, just statements. But uh, so the first one, it's an interesting one, is uh, Will we ever be able to separate the economic effects of Brexit and those of COVID satisfactorily? Meredith. Yeah, so this is an empirical question and it's, you know, we can write down models to try to disentangle the two effects, but they're integrated with one another. So I think COVID reinforces the negative consequences of Brexit and Brexit reinforces the negative consequences of COVID. And so we can maybe ascribe some of the damage to Brexit and some to COVID, but there's always going to be a correlated piece. So the very fact that the two have reinforced one another, I think means we won't be able to really separate them. I mean, um, unless you want to come in, don't feel the need. We don't need to get you all to answer everything. We just have a follow-up. Go on, Ben. No, I, just to, to build on that, I think you could imagine um, some modelling work in 15 years' time, which looks at what happened to UK trade over the previous 15 years relative to what happened to other countries' trade patterns. And you can, might be able to say, well, that was COVID, that was Brexit, but certainly not in the near term. I think there's a danger that people are looking for some sort of um, smoking gun piece of evidence, whether it's in trade flows or, or whatever now, to say this is definitely COVID, this is definitely Brexit. And I think they're going to struggle to find that. And do you think? I, mean, I guess that's right. I mean, I mean Meredith, Sorry, is one, Meredith is the one who will actually do the work. But I mean, I think we will struggle. You know, what we won't be able to say at the you know in six months or at the end of this year is is Brexit has not precisely one point seven or two percent of growth. But I suspect that the work of Meredith and other people who look at um, the uh, uh, detailed trade data will be able to say some. Some, you know, there'll be some reasonably definitive stuff at a sector or subsector level where you'll be able to say, we do observe quite differential patterns um, and we can correlate this with what we know about uh, the provisions of the TCA and say credibly that, that these are um, Brexit-induced impacts. Um, I know, but, but Meredith might say more about that. Um, similarly on migration, I think. Oh, you... You went mute for a minute there, Jonathan. But do you think it's the case that some of, I mean, presumably some of the impacts of Brexit are simply going to be delayed by the pandemic? I mean, you know, service providers haven't actually run into the problems they're going to run into because everyone's locked at home. Well, so, sorry, I'm just jumping in. I think in some sense, this is an econometric, the whole question is econometric. And the question is, what's the econometric answer? And we have tools for decomposing different sources of shocks. It is the case, I think we can all agree, that because we are trading less, some of the negative costs of Brexit are, are being delayed, as you suggested. So the very fact that we're not buying cars right now means the additional cost associated with moving car parts and cars from Europe to the UK 
means that that cost won't really hit the economy until a bit later. Um, so we can always write down models, but in some sense, the, the bigger question is not precisely how we time this, but it's, it's really wanting to understand what the counterfactual is of how much has Brexit helped the UK economy and how much has it harmed it. And so in some sense, the help is going to be for you know, us looking 10 years from now, what kinds of differences in tax policy, what types of differences in subsidy policy and other types of economic policy were implemented because of Brexit. And those could be beneficial to the economy. You know, how much did having a divergent tax policy support productivity versus how much did leaving the EU common market harm UK productivity by introducing additional non-tariff barriers and additional costs to doing business with the UK's largest market? So, you know, that's the real question and we'll be able to, you know, this is going to be leaking out slowly and we'll be able to to point to it. In the in some sense the presumption of the question is like, well, if we find out that most of this was due to Brexit, then what do we do about it? Does it mean that, you know, in another 10 years we're going to say, okay, well, actually the cost, you know, there were some advantages of, you know, having a different tax policy, but those were swamped by the additional cost of doing business and actually we should go back into the EU. Um, well, that, that's an excellent segue into the next question, which is what are the biggest economic opportunities provided by Brexit? Well, okay, so, uh, um, you know, um, I think in the short term, there's not you know uh, um, you know, leaving aside whether or not uh, we won't go into I, I hope the, uh, the 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 framed question of whether the vaccine uh, um, represents a sort of Brexit effect or not. Um, no but way. leaving that aside, um, uh, you know I think it's not completely unreasonable. The government position, which is sort of the effort, you know, uh, uh, the economic opportunities will take quite a while to materialise in any concrete form, isn't actually a crazy position, right? Um, you know, to the extent that the opportunities of Brexit are those that are presented by the opportunity, two things, I think, the opportunity to diverge from EU regulations and the opportunity to, uh, um, uh, to extend trading links with non-EU countries. To the extent that you regard those as genuine opportunities, you would expect them to take some, some time to, to materialise. Um, so I think what the government, and I think the government, although it you know uh, um, is a bit equivocal on this, has adopted what I think is the sort of correct position, which is the opportunities from divergence do not come from tearing up EU environmental or labour regulations. They come from future regulations on things like fintech, um, um, biotech, and so on, where we can perhaps be faster and more nimble. Um, and that, that, again, that is not a crazy position, but those, those opportunities will take some time to materialize. As I said before, I think what you are going to see, and whether you call this an opportunity or a threat, and it's clearly a mixture of both, is particularly in financial services and fintech, um, effectively um, a mercantilist competition between uh, the EU uh, um, on the one side and the UK um, on, the, on the other, with the EU using its greater weight um, um, economic weight in the UK using the advantage of having the incumbent financial center and perhaps uh, the ability to regulate more quickly and it hopes more nimbly. 
Um, and, you know, um, uh, I'm not enough of an expert to say who's going to win that one, but I think that, that will be clearly an area of competition. Um, on trade deals, um, well, I think we all know the reasons for being skeptical. I think um, there is perhaps more space to, towards a trade deal with some sort of, if not a, a fully fledged trade deal, at least a deeper trade relationship with India than there was, say, a couple of years ago, because the biggest single hurdle there, the complete reluctance of the May government to make any uh, move or concessions on migration-related issues, um, it, you know, ha has been dropped. So we can at least, you know, uh, um, that, that doesn't mean there aren't still very large obstacles to a substantive trade deal with India. But it does mean that we can at least begin those negotiations without them immediately being blown up by, uh, by having a, a xenophobic prime minister um, who doesn't want any Indians coming here. For those of you who are suffering with a problem from the stream, uh, we're just, well, when I say we, obviously not me, because I don't understand what that means, but someone who understands these things is restarting the stream. So that should be sorted out soon, I hope. But while I've got you, Jonathan, actually there's a question that's right in your area before we move on, which is, uh, what precisely do we know about levels of emigration from the UK? Uh, and isn't that by far going to be the biggest economic impact that we've faced at the moment, simply because so many people seem to have left? Um, well, the answer is we know nothing precisely. Uh, I think we know with a reasonable degree of certainty that very large numbers of people have indeed left. Um, uh, and that you know, we know that from both what the very unreliable um, and, and uncertain data show, which show, show uh, a very large number um, in the latest official statistics, perhaps a million, um, there's a lot of uncertainty around that, potentially in both directions, but I think we also know anecdotally um, that large numbers of people left, and it's quite obvious why the UK handled the pandemic very badly from both an economic and health perspective um, in the, the, the initial phase, and at the same time, the sectors that were most hit, badly hit, were those which disproportionately employ migrants, and migrants are concentrated in areas and sectors where it's both easiest for them to leave if they live in the private rental sector and most financially advantageous. For them. There are all sorts of reasons why this happened. What does it mean, mean in the long term, though? Obviously, this depends on what happens post-pandemic. And you can tell, I think, to you, know, there are different scenarios here. You can actually tell an optimistic scenario where from being the worst, you know, where London goes from being perhaps the worst place to be in Europe in the spring, summer of 2020, to where it goes to being the best place in, in, in Europe to be in the summer of 2021, um, because we have uh, vaccinated much more quickly than almost any other big country, and London is booming. Um, uh, equally, it's possible that despite our success in vaccination, we still see a relatively stagnant recovery, and that um, some of the, uh, 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 that, that in particular, some of the sectors that are worst hit because of permanent changes, which we've all agreed we don't know how big they're going to be, but permanent shifts to working from home um, hit um, some uh, customer-facing services. Um, so I think there is a huge amount of uncertainty, uh, um, and the OBR did recognize this in its publication last week, where it said that, um, that there was a significant downside risk um, to potential output because of the potential shrinkage in the, in the, in the population. Um, but... Uh, um, but which way you know uh, uh, will go? I, I think we genuinely don't know. I still, I, I think I'm air on the, the cautiously optimistic side, and I think if we do 
successfully roll out the vaccine, reopen things, then a lot of the people who have left will come back and more people will come. Um, but it's by no means uh, a certainty and it clearly is a significant risk. We've got one in specifically on the uh, TCA, which is, does, does the TCA put the UK in the worst of all worlds? So we're slightly in the orbit of the EU because of level playing field, but we have reduced access to EU markets. So in a sense, should we have, you know, would it have been preferable to go for either a closer relationship or a more distant one? And is, I suppose, my own follow-up to that is, is, is this uh, an equilibrium we can maintain or is it stable? I don't know how, how stable it is, but I, I don't think it's the worst of all possible worlds. I, I think talking to lawyers, one thing about the TCA compared to other trade agreements, it is far, far more complex than the trade agreement between any other two countries in the world. So because the relationship was so close, this is a trade agreement is incredibly deep and complex. And I think, um, so I'll just give one example um, about, I mentioned earlier this rebalancing. And so there's this idea that actually the UK does have a lot of sovereignty and they can basically do whatever they want. They're outside the EU state aid formula. And that seems to be something the government desired. The, the hitch is that if the way they implement a tax or investment policy generates some sort of really big benefit for the UK, and that feeds into UK exports to the EU, the EU can now retaliate with a tariff. And so there's a system set up for doing that. Now, there was a sort of similar concern when China joined the WTO, that China joining the WTO would lead countries in Europe, the United States, Canada, all these high-income countries were worried about getting completely slammed with um, exports from China. And so the China, accession agreement to the WTO had this sort of complicated provision that said if there are very high exports to any WTO member and that WTO member investigates the China exports and decides to impose a tariff on China just to stem the flow of imports and to help them manage their adjustment to having China as part of the WTO, then second EU second members of the WTO can then follow on and do the same tariff. So it was this sort of complicated ability to retaliate against China. And in practice, nobody ever used it. So institutionally, it required a separate framework in the same way that this rebalancing provision of the TCA requires a whole new institutional arrangement. So one hope is that because it's complicated to do these retaliatory tariffs, the EU might not follow through with it. So sort of a meandering explanation for the agreement is super complicated and we won't know how it's going to play out in terms of UK's access to the EU market until we see how the EU wants to implement it and how the EU is viewing it and how the EU responds to things like the Chancellor's aggressive um, tax benefits for new investment. And so they can go, either they could right at the start say, we really don't like what you're doing with your tax policy and we're going to fight you from the start. Or they could say, we're going to live and let live and let it go for a while. And we're only going to choose really, really burdensome cases where we think this has really gone overboard. And we don't know how they're going to calibrate their response to UK policy. So in some ways, a flexible agreement can be good and that there is flexibility. So we'll have to see how that flexibility is used. Does anyone else want to comment on the, Ben? 
Yeah, I suppose just I would say, you know, having spent the best part of four years warning that the no deal Brexit would be the worst outcome. I'm not going to change that view now and say that this is the worst of all outcomes, what we've got in the TCA. I mean, I suppose the, the questions, the two last questions are linked. It's about what opportunities does Brexit open up that weren't there before? And my reading of the more uh, coherent, if you like, arguments from Brexiteers about the economic opportunities is that they are more political economic than they are purely economic for all the reasons that Jonathan was saying. Um, does it enable us as a policymakers in the UK to do things which for whatever reason they didn't do before, make, take actions which will enhance our productivity growth, unlock our potential, etc. Now, um, it's very hard to prove that because you can, a lot of people have and do point out that a lot of the things they're doing, they could have done within the EU, that it wasn't actually a constraint. So to the extent which the, the argument is true and it does enable them to do those things, then that is an opportunity from Brexit. And you could argue, I suppose, that the TCA in, in constraining that by making us not completely uh, divorced from EU uh, regulatory ambit um, is a constraint, but it all depends on how coherent or how convincing you find that argument that Brexit unlocks those political economy policy-making uh, uh, opportunities and decisions which weren't there before. Gemma. Oh, before you go, Gemma, let me just say, I don't know why I'm saying this, because presumably if you're watching, you'll know, but the stream is now back and apologies for the disruption earlier. Sorry, Gemma. Um, yeah, just one uh, sort of more specific point to add to what Meredith and Ben said. There are some areas, and particularly I think around uh, use of state subsidies, where the TCA may actually help the UK government. So we were previously subject to the EU's state aid rules, and although we're now not subject to the state aid rules, the TCA does require that the UK has some sort of regime in place to regulate the use of subsidies in the UK. And whilst that might sound like a constraint on what the government wants to do in some ways, some political economy ways, it might be quite a benefit to them. And I say that because, firstly, it will slightly insulate the government from being subject to lobbying from every single business group out there who wants to have a special subsidy or tax break targeted at their business, their industry, their part of the country. And also, uh, if you don't have any kind of regime regulating the use of subsidies in that way, you can end up in a situation where you have different parts of the country trying to beggar thy, beggar thy neighbour, attract business into one bit of the country away from another bit of the country, which for the UK as a whole is not terribly beneficial. And so actually, the TCA requiring some kind of regime to regulate those policies actually should be beneficial for the UK government in general, even though it looks like a constraint on their behaviour. One of the political rationales for Brexit we used to hear was that Brexit would mean that we can no longer blame the EU for things that go wrong in this country, but I suspect it's going to be a long time before we reap that particular benefit, judging from the tone of the government on the EU at the moment. I think we'll be blaming the EU for things for a long, long while to come. Uh, just on the domestic implications, we've got a question here about sort of rebalancing the economy away from financial services. That is to say, you know, if financial services lose a lot of their access to the EU, uh, does in a sense does that in a sense force us to bite the bullet of that rebalancing away from financial services? Should we do it? Is it practical? Is that an opportunity that we haven't really thought about yet? I sense scepticism. <laughs> I think I'm a little bit nervous of assuming that undermining what has been quite a strong industry in the UK 
will generate overall benefits. Um, I mean, I suppose one of the sort of fears in the past is that the pay on offer in the financial sector has drawn talent away from other sectors and particularly think about stories of highly trained engineers and mathematicians who now work in financial services rather than in other parts of industry. I suppose the, the danger is that the it's a global labour market for some of those people and that might mean those people going and working elsewhere rather than working in other industries in the UK. So it's possible, but I think we should be cautious of assuming that will happen automatically. And, and do you have a sense of how great any impact on the UK financial services Brexit is going to have? Are we clearer about that yet, do we think? I mean, not really. I think, you know, that, that you know, as far as financial services, and because it wasn't a matter, not a matter of um, customs forms or big investments, um, firms were pretty well prepared. So there wasn't really a big shock on January the 1st, although, of course, electronic share trading or whatever that's worth did move. But I think, you know, the, the impact is very much going to be the slow puncture. The EU strategy clearly is to try and slowly, carefully, over time, buys away bits of London to the continent. Um, as I said, the UK strategy will be to try and retaliate by um, changing its regulations strategically. Um, so I think uh, um, the, you know, the, 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 this, this, this battle, and it will be, in my view, a battle, is going to take place over the next decade. We won't know the answer in the next year or two. Ben? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, just listening to what the Bank of England governor has been saying and what tr uh, Treasury people have been saying is that they've, it seems to me that they've basically given up on the idea that the EU is going to give equivalence to the UK's regulatory regime uh, now. And the, a lot of the sort of speculation of a, a sinological services trade deal is, is really way off the mark. Um, that's the noises that are coming from them. In terms of the overall impact, I mean, Jonathan will know much more about this than I do, but, but you know, I presume financial services are a quite a large chunk of that lost trade or that foregone trade over the next 15 years. I've never seen a breakdown of exactly how much, but considering it is such a large part of our financial services, not to say our, our financial services trade surplus, I think you can imagine that the, the overall impact of not getting that equivalence at least in the, uh, the modelling we've seen, would be pretty substantial. Meredith. Yeah, I'll, I'll just add, in terms of the quantification, one of the things that was interesting was in May, the government released its assessment of what the impact of the proposed US-UK free trade agreement would be. And one of the, the sort of surprising things was the benefits to the UK were small, so it was like between seven hundredths and fourteen hundredths of one percent GDP growth at a long-term horizon. But the other thing was, the financial services was the one sector of the economy expected to atrophy under a free trade deal with the US. And I think the idea is that financial services benefit a lot from scale economies. And while London is an important financial center, New York is bigger. And so if you have free trade between the two you were going to inevitably have people move from financial services in the UK into other sectors of the economy, which all showed sort of very small levels of growth if they had free trade with the US. So I think the whole idea here of, um, you know, is this a good thing for the economy to have people moving into other sectors? Well, you know, it's hard to assess 
um, how easily people can transmit their, their skills from one sector to another. But I think there's really um, not been very much good news from the idea that the, the financial sector in the UK has been hit by Brexit. There doesn't seem like there's huge growth opportunities in other markets. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, sort of institutional and human capital that might be drying up very slowly. Now, by, by far the most sort of popular question on the questions is about the island, Northern Ireland protocol and what's happening there, which I understand is slightly sort of off topic in a sense. It's not strictly an economic one, but I'm going to give you an opportunity to talk about it if you want. I'd also say, uh, Michael, that if you want to pose that question again tomorrow, when we're talking about business effects, you might get some interesting answers then from uh, businesses about that. But do we see a way that the, the, the spat over the protocol can be resolved? Or does this just point to the fact that both sides have approached this, that the fudge ultimately is going to fall apart? As I said, don't feel compelled because I understand this is not what we got you here to talk about. But as the question is there staring me in the face, I thought I'd pose it. I mean, I feel nervous of saying too much on this, except to go as far as saying that I think the, the issues that are rearing their heads now are the ones that I think economists predicted would be uh, the difficult well, economists and many others predicted would be the difficulties with the Northern Ireland Protocol. So I think there probably was some uh, willful mis-selling on the politicians' part that the Northern Ireland Protocol had dealt with all the issues. It was a mm. probably predictable. I, I, I don't want to go any further in saying whether they can be solved. You probably know that better than I do, Alan. Does anyone else want to come in on this? No hands up now. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, there is this sense that we might just face escalation. I mean, both on both on the protocol and indeed on mollusks, with the British government now talking about fizzy water imports, that we just very, very quickly could find ourselves in a trade war, uh, with one side retaliating, the other side following suit. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that is right. I mean, I, you know, like others, I'm not pretending to any expertise, but you know, it seems to me reasonably obvious that. Um, you know, with goodwill on both sides, these, you know, you know the, 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 you know, we, we've signed up to something, um, we could, we could make it work. Um, and yes, there would be a border down the Irish Sea, but it wouldn't be the end of the world, um, for either for businesses or for individuals. Um, but the British government has chosen not to try and make that work, but to, to choose confrontation and, and uh, um, uh, the EU that is not helped by the, you know, the, the EU hasn't really tried to reset the relationship. Maybe it could have, maybe it couldn't, hard to say, but the, the legalistic and uh, structures of the EU make it very difficult for them to, to do anything with this sort of confrontation, but escalate further. So, um, you know, I think we, we talk about the TCA as if it was a done deal. It's not a done deal. Um, uh, it's not been ratified by the European Parliament, um, and the whether or not it is, um, the prospects of a trade, what, what, at the very least, a sort of low-level trade war um, uh, over the next few years seem to me to be quite high, actually. So we could do a fourth rewrite of our No Deal report, Jonathan. Ben. 
Yeah, just to, to, to sort of follow up very briefly. I mean, as Jonathan said, this is a question of you need goodwill between the two sides. And it doesn't seem to me a very good starting position to say to, for the British side to deny the uh, continue to deny the consequences of the protocol which it signed up to and uh, voted through and heralded as a great triumph. These were, as Gemma said, pointed out at the time, these economic implications for it. They need to own them and then they can start to move on. It seems to me that's a, a necessary condition for moving on to the goodwill stage of dealing with these inevitable economic uh, frictions that result from it. There's a couple of questions about inflation, uh, sort of, and the, pand the post-pandemic recovery. Is, is inflation something we should be a little bit concerned about, or is it really not an issue at the moment? As we come out of lockdown, maybe people start spending their money again. Uh, is this a concern? Yeah, Ben. Um, I think it comes back to what I was saying at the start is we just don't know how big the output gap is. We don't know how much slack is in the UK economy. There's these various estimates from the OBR, from the Bank of England, from private sector economists, all very, very credible. The answer is we just don't know. We've never been in this kind of uh, slump before where essentially the government has shut down a lot of activity and people have stopped going out. How much that can be bounced back, you know, how much we can bounce back from that easily and the supply uh, capacity of the economy will bounce back with, with demand. Um, it's plausible it could come back just as it was. It's also plausible that there is long-term scarring and if we if demand comes back too quickly, we will have inflation. I don't think we can be confident about any of those judgments. My preference would be, as I was saying at the start, is to assume not much damage, keep monetary and fiscal settings on stimulus, and then deal with the uh, inflation, any inflation which does result through the tried and tested method of the Bank of England raising interest rates. Does anyone else want to come in? I know, Jonathan, you've had thoughts on the danger of inflation before you're muted. Uh, yeah, I agree with Ben. Uh, um, you know, could there be a, a one-off hit to, to prices? Quite possibly. Do, do I see that becoming entrenched? No. I mean, the really interesting thing, I think, is, is, is what's going to happen in the US, where um, the Biden stimulus is really going to test this, uh, the, the question of whether you can uh, indeed generate significant inflation by, uh, by pumping lots of money into the economy. Uh, one way or the other, and we'll really get some very interesting uh, results from that. Anyone else want to come? Uh, Meredith? Yeah, I'll just say, I think I'm. inflation is not at the top of my worry list for the UK economy. I mean, we could see some, some negative consequences if growth is really elaborate. But as Ben said, you know, we can always hike up interest rates. I think the one thing maybe to think about is when we had the big depreciation of the pound back in June 2016, we saw prices of the things we use as inputs into production here rise quite quickly. So the cost of the depreciation in terms of did we have to pay more for the things we were importing, you know, in terms of parts and stuff? Yes, we did. And so that's sort of a permanent Kind of negative hit to some some business costs. So I think I'm I'm less worried about a kind of stimulus related inflation. Um, you know, it's not too long ago that we were worried about inflation being too low. So um, you know, maybe if we have inflation, that's not the worst problem in the world. But I think there's also you know, as much as I say I'm not worried about inflation, I'm also aware of the fact that the weak pound means that 
that costs of, of purchasing lots of things are higher than they were um, some years ago. And so that was sort of like a permanent hit associated with the, the loss of the value of the pound. How much faith do you have that in a post-pandemic, post-Brexit situation, the government can really meanfully bring about some sort of levelling up of the UK economy? Well, I mean, I think that's the, the you know, uh, I would dispute the, the premise of the question in terms of can it? Yes. Does it want to on the basis of the evidence so far? No. Um, you know, if you were serious about levelling up, you would um, certainly make the £20 a week universal credit uplift permanent. You would certainly restore cuts to local councils over the last 10 years. Um, and you wouldn't have introduced a levelling up fund that is explicitly targeted to, uh, um, conserve, to, to bolster the position of Conservative MPs. Um, you know, the, the, the fact that the levelling up fund has clearly um, identified um, it's where it wants to spend money for political reasons than by reference to deprivation or need, um, I think tells you everything you need to know at this point. Um, now, you know, could, could that change? Yes, but the government would have to, you know, fundamentally reset what it wants out of levelling up because at the moment it is made clear that what it wants out of levelling up is to, uh, is, is not to de devolve either power or money to areas or communities that need it, but rather to target money from Westminster on areas where it perceives a political need for a centrally funded project. Um, and that um, is both, you know, not only uh, raises fairly obvious questions about um, propriety um, and, and whether that's an appropriate way for the government to act, but it's, it's, not, a, um, it's not a credible strategy for leveling up the country economically over the medium to long term for, for fairly obvious reasons. Ben. Yeah, absolutely. I would just uh, to, to add on to that, I think you where is the white paper on devolution we were promised uh, this year? Delayed, who knows when that's going to come out. Devolution is a key element of serious uh, leveling up, as Jonathan said. And it's looking that they're backing away from uh, from what they promised on that. Also, I'd add the Industrial Strategy Council, which has been well, as we're here, is in the process of of being wound down. I mean, that doesn't suggest to me a government which is well. It suggests a government which is more interested, as Matthew Taylor said in his response to it being axed, and he's obviously on, was on the council. Um, it suggests a, a treasury which is more interested in. Uh, tax breaks and centralization rather than the key long-term strategic and decentralized approach, which is necessary to make uh, leveling up a reality. Gemma. I think what I'm waiting for is a really clear statement from the government of actually what it means to level up. What is this improving the opportunities of people born in parts of the country that have not had great opportunities in the past? Um, is it therefore okay if if that means that they have better opportunities and they move somewhere else to find a job? Or is this about creating jobs um, in parts of the country that haven't typically had higher skilled jobs available? Um, but going along with that, kind of what's the theory of change about why any government interventions are going to generate improvements? And for example, do we know that if encouraging a high-tech business to locate in an otherwise deprived part of the country, what would lead us to believe that that has spillover benefits for the people who live 
around that who perhaps aren't working in that specific business or would it just lead to the negative consequences of bidding up prices for nice houses in that area as you move in high skilled workers but not really doing anything for the prospects of people who actually already live there so I'm, I think the government is sort of missing that really what is it trying to achieve and what's its theory of change for why the interventions it's announced are really going to deliver those results. And as Jonathan said, it's not clear um, on those sorts of metrics how the money that was allocated in the budget has been prioritised across those areas and whether or not it indicates uh, political bias it certainly without being clearly able to say how they've chosen those interventions it certainly leaves them open to that um, uh, accusation. What do we think moving Treasury officials to Darlington might achieve? I think the, the sort of danger of uh, that uh, proposal um, is you really you really need a, a hub of um, jobs. So if you want to attract uh, the best Treasury civil servants to work in Darlington, there needs to be a sense in which they have career prospects in that area. So other jobs requiring similar skills that they could move on to from their job in the Treasury, other jobs available for perhaps those people's partners. I mean, most, most people now are in two earner couples. So people's decision about whether they would be happy to relocate to Darlington will not only be, have I got a job, job in the Treasury, but can my partner get a, a suitable job in the local area as well? So I think there's a sort of concern that Darlington, for, particularly for that choice, is that there's not that nexus of other jobs in the area around that. And presumably, as Ben was saying, this is tied into a larger vision about devolution as well. Uh, you need to have some overall strategy. But Ben, you wanted to come in. Yeah, just to, to, to uh, reinforce what uh, Gemma was saying there, I mean, I think uh, if you think that the key problem with uh, the regions in the UK, in England, is underpowered cities in the north, which I find quite a compelling analysis, as opposed to people who think we need stronger towns. The Darlington decision really leans against that policy in that you should be building up the capacity of big cities like Leeds and Manchester and Liverpool and Newcastle, because that's where you're going to get the productivity growth. That's where you really get the, uh, the bang for your buck from these kind of moves. Moving it to Darlington, it does smack of the ONS being moved to Newport uh, as a kind of thing which is going to look back on and say, well, that was a that was a wrong decision. We should have gone where there were, as Gemma said, lots of complementary jobs uh, and, a, and, a, and a strong, potentially stronger ecosystem uh, that we are building into and feeding uh, and in, in enhancing. I mean, just very quickly from the sort of government perspective of moving it to Darlington, we do actually have quite a lot of civil servants working outside London already. The problem in the past has been that most of a lot of the policy making happens in London because that's where the politicians are. Um, so to make it work, you, you really are going to need to ensure that ministers are going to Darlington to talk to their policy officials uh, face to face and make sure you have that interaction, which might be uh, absolutely fine with a chancellor whose seat is very close to Darlington, um, but perhaps in the future with a different chancellor, the danger would be that they're less inclined to go and visit Darlington and that those civil servants become more detached again. Yeah, you've got to wonder if the next chancellor is from Cornwall or a seat is in Cornwall, <laughs> how, how enticing a prospect Darlington will be. Uh, there's a couple of questions about the sort of medium-term future of UK-EU relations, which are interesting. And, and the, the thrust is, 
you know, will the weight of the economic cost of Brexit push the two sides to seek a closer arrangement, either by adding to what they have now or by trying to deepen what they have now? Do you have any thoughts about this, whether the economics will drive them towards moving closer? I'm cynical as a political scientist, but let's take the economic view. I mean, I think it, surely we've learned from the last decade or so that um, economics on its own, um, the, the fact that something um, is economically beneficial does not mean it's going to happen. Um, you know, uh, that doesn't mean it won't happen either. But, but you know, the, the idea that you know, some people um, seem to have that, that economic gravity will mean that there has to be a closer relationship in future, I think is, is just hopelessly reductive. Um, it will depend on, on, on politics. It will depend on, on what the political dynamics are both here and, and, and on the other side of the, of the channel. Um, as I said, I do think that there is a, a good argument for saying that the current equilibrium is unstable and that it will go in one direction or the other. I think in the short term, given the government we have and the pressures we have, that is likely to be more divergence. It certainly could swing back the other way in the future, but that will depend on, on how politics are, evolves here, um, at least as much as, uh, uh, as economics. Does anyone else want to? Meredith. Well, I was going to say, I think over time, what we're going to see is, I think eventually there will be a realization in the UK about the asymmetry in the relationship and that the benefits of having a tighter economic relationship and more integration with the EU are going to be concentrated in the UK side, not in the EU side. And so it's going to be a little bit like, you know, the United States, Canada, and Mexico. For Canada and Mexico, it's quite costly to have an end of the trade agreement with the United States. For the United States, it's much less costly. So we saw Donald Trump bully Canada and Mexico into a trade agreement that was a little bit more advantageous for the US and basically giving the US into the US demands because Canada and Mexico kind of looked at the, the prospect of having to separate from the US and said, actually the benefits to us are, are larger for sticking around. They're not perfect, you know, they're not infinite. So they weren't willing to take any deal the US offered, but they realized quite astutely that they didn't have a lot of bargaining power as the negotiations went forth. So I think eventually it might not be this quite immediate generation of politicians who realizes this, but I think, going forward in time, there's going to be more realization of, oh, we have a lot to gain from deeper integration. The EU doesn't. And so if we're going to negotiate something new, it's going to be an asymmetric negotiation with the UK having to be the side that's really eager to, to deepen the relationship. Otherwise, it won't happen. Let me turn that question on its head then and say, Imagine, I'm not for a moment suggesting it's likely or probable, but imagine that the European Parliament refuses to ratify the TCA. Uh, so we slide back into no deal territory. How, how big a deal is that for the British economy? Uh, I mean, how, not, not just in, in terms of the numbers, as it were, and yes, there'll be tariffs, and yes, there'll be quotas, and yes, trade will be even harder, but is that something that will be noticeably uh, more negative for us? Uh, or is it something that, again, I mean, the, the political impacts of the economics of Brexit, to date at least, seem quite limited. Uh, would no deal be qualitatively different in any way or not? 
for some sectors, it's going to be, it would be qualitatively different. You know, it would, it would totally change automobiles. So automobiles is a sector that's under, you know, I think you have David Bailey coming in later this week. So he'll be able to speak to this more eloquently and more, um, more informed position, but it, it will kill automobiles here. It's a sector that's undergoing transition with the switch to electric vehicles, mm -hmm. which have a fundamentally different production kind of system. But uh, the auto sector here would be totally, I think, you know, really hit hard if the EU Parliament weren't to ratify the TCA. Um, other sectors, not such a not such a big deal. Ben, uh, it's time to dust off your UK and EU No Deal Brexit explainer to get the answer to <laughs> that. But I mean, uh, the, uh, with the uh, with the addition that you would not have the COVID, or if if it happened, I don't know, in a few couple of months, you would less have less COVID uh, in. Uh, things to muddy the waters on the impact. Um, and you may have, um, yeah, you may have as motive for saying more sectoral high profile impacts, um, which will be more visible, but honestly, who knows on the political side? Yeah, I mean, politically what's interesting, I suppose, is we would be in the context of a post COVID bounce, wouldn't we? So whether that, I mean, well, that helps or hinders, I don't know. But I think it is something we probably need to start at least thinking about just because, you know, the relations between the two sides seem to so fraught. Jonathan, would you like, do you want to add anything on? Um, no, I mean, I, I, I agree with that. I, I mean, and, and to your last point, I mean, yes, we would be in, in, in a post-COVID balance, but as, as uh, Meredith said, you know, specific sectors would be affected. And I think, you know, the, the impacts of a no-deal uh, a, a new no deal on confidence um, and in particular on, on large manufacturing um, uh, uh, sector, the sector would be very visible and very politically visible, even if at the same time restaurants and, and shops were reopening and, and pushing up GDP. So I think uh, um, it would be it would be a major shock. Um, and particularly, you know, I think that the, the, the damage to the UK sort of international economic profile and image would be pretty severe it's very hard to quantify but uh, but it's not it would not just be a, a couple of days headlines it would be quite profoundly damaging i think now we've got under a minute left i, I can say that relatively comfortably that, uh, confidently that i've got it right this time round. uh but jonathan can you just very very quickly in 30 seconds because a couple of people are saying they missed what you were saying earlier because that's when we froze take us through the economics of what's happening to migration and what the impact looks like it might be on the UK economy of? Well, um, someone asked if we, we knew precisely how many people left the country. I said, no, we don't have an idea, even within hundreds of thousands. The latest ONS figures, if taken literally, suggest a million, um, but there's lots of uncertainty in both directions. But what I think we can say is that it's not surprising uh, the UK was worsted in economic and health terms by the pandemic, um, that large numbers of people who are relatively mobile should have left the country, and they clearly have. We know that from the data. We also know it anecdotally. But the big question in terms of what's the medium to longer impact is what happens after the, uh, um, after the pandemic. Do people come back as the UK bounces back quicker because of the success of our vaccination program, um, as we have a bit of a, uh, a boom later this year? Um, in which case maybe the uh, damage is relatively small, or do we actually have a relatively slow recovery? People aren't attracted back. Brexit makes it harder or less desirable for some people at least to return. 
in which case we see quite significant long-term damage as the OBR recognized last week. Brilliant, thank you. We've run out of time again. So I will reiterate my thanks to the four of you and I hope we can get you back again in a few months time to revisit the state of the economy and where we're at and have this conversation once again. Do fill in your surveys, even if it's only to point out that the chair was totally incompetent and do join us 12 o'clock every day this week for another event on some aspect of the state of the UK economy. But for the moment, thank you all very, very much for joining us. Thank you to the panelists. It was a really, really interesting discussion as ever. Take care and we'll see you soon.